This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. We return to our series in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We are in Matthew chapter 19. So please turn with me your Bibles, Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. It's page 824 in the Pew Bibles, Matthew 19, verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus, uh, the, this verse, uh, this passage, uh, leaves Galilee, enters the region of Judea uh, beyond the Jordan, which would be on the uh, east side of the Jordan, but heading south toward Jerusalem. And in fact, the rest of Matthew uh, is involved with Jesus heading toward Jerusalem and triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the events that led up to his arrest and his death. Uh, Matthew 19, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. Thank you, Father, for the blessing that it is to us, the comfort that it is to us, and above all, the light that it is to us of your work of salvation and your provision for our salvation in Jesus. And now, Father, as we take up this study of this portion of your word, we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Jesus is making his way along, uh, crowds were following him. Uh, He was healing them. 
It reminds me of John's statement that said these were things that Jesus did so that you might, might make, may know that he is the, uh, the Savior, the Son of God. But it's only selective. And if uh, all of the things were to be written down that Jesus did, John says, I imagine the whole world wouldn't have room for all the books that would be written. Of course, he had no conception. You could put it all in a hard drive, perhaps, and greatly compress the space. But the point is, he's speaking in hyperbole. He's just saying there's so much more that Jesus did that is not written in the Scriptures. And we have a hint of that here uh, for all of the descriptions of the amazing accounts of healing that Jesus performed. Uh, verse 2 simply says, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Uh, what untold tales, unrecorded stories of deliverance and healing and joy uh, and restoration that uh, is, is uh, bound up in those few words. But not all was pleasant, not all was happy. Uh, the Pharisees were also trailing Jesus. And verse 3 tells us that uh, they came up to Jesus and asked him a question, but Matthew indicates their motivation was not merely seeking information or even just seeking his opinion, but Matthew says they were testing Jesus when they asked this question. And as we'll see, their motivation was trying to embroil Jesus in uh, controversies of the day uh, so that either they might have some reason to accuse him or that the crowds might have some reason to reject him or at least uh, to dislike him. Now, this is the question that they ask in verse 3. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Uh, and the, the emphasis is on the variety of reasons. Um, some translations uh, render it. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for just any reason at all? Basically what they're asking. Uh, now, the, that question doesn't come out of the blue. Uh, in Jesus' day, uh, as in our own day, uh, the, the whole question of marriage, the question of divorce, uh, is a very existential question. Uh, it has to do with daily life. It has to do with the realities. It's not just a theor theoretical abstract thought, but it has to do with how we live and what we do. And so certainly in their day, that was a question that was discussed, that was debated. Various rabbis took positions on it. Uh, there were two schools of thought, rabbinic schools of thought particularly. Uh, one was the school of Shammai, uh, who took a fairly strict view of Deuteronomy 24, uh, which we read earlier, where uh, if, if a man finds something indecent, some indecency is basically a way to translate it in his wife, it's kind of general, than to, if, if he divorces her to give her a certificate of divorce. Well, uh, Shammai's view was that that had to be something pretty significant, uh, probably short of adultery, however, because in the Old Testament, adultery was a capital offense, which meant you could be put to death for it, although there's some question of how uh, frequently uh, that, that was carried out. Nevertheless, it probably was something short of full-blown unfaithfulness because that itself was a capital crime, a criminal offense. And so it doesn't seem that that's what's being talked about there in, uh, in, in chapter 24 of Deuteronomy, uh, though certainly adultery would qualify as some indecent thing, but perhaps some other 
um, some other intimacy that was inappropriate, that was that was offensive to the husband. There was another school of thought, that of Rabbi Hillel, that was, shall we say, much broader. Uh, under Hillel's view, if your wife so much as burned breakfast, that was sufficient grounds to send her away. In fact, uh, some uh, in that school even said if you should come across uh, a woman you found more attractive, that was sufficient grounds to divorce your wife. Needless to say, Hillel's view was rather popular in some quarters. It seemed to have biblical sanction behind it. Uh, some guys really lined up behind that view. There was another uh, element of background here, backstory that was going on here, and you'll, you'll be familiar with it. The whole situation with John the Baptist when he confronted Herod about his illicit marriage uh, and everything that was taking place there and uh, wound up being executed because of the trouble he caused. And perhaps there was some thought here where we can, you know, maybe get Jesus kind of entangled up in that same sort of thing and get him in trouble with Herod. Um, so they're trying to test Jesus. They're trying to get him in trouble when they ask the question, which was a, was a current question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for just any reason? By the way, you'll notice that's a distinctly male point of view. Women did not have the right to divorce, uh, only men. And so this is an ask from a man's point of view, as you women probably noticed immediately. Is it lawful for, to divorce one's wife? For any, for just any reason. Now, that question gives Jesus the opportunity to give us some important teaching about marriage. Now, he's already touched on this in the Sermon on the Mount. And there it was more the question of marriage in the context of the kingdom. Here, it's the, it's the, it has to do with this question about divorce and how that relates to marriage, and particularly uh, to us as Christians, what we are to think. So we can be thankful to them for asking the question and giving Jesus the occasion to answer it for the information that it gives us and recorded here in Scripture. Well, Jesus basically responds uh, by pointing out three truths about marriage that uh, was important for them to understand, important for us to understand. In the first place, Jesus points out that marriage was God's original design. In other words, marriage is what we're to concentrate on, not divorce. The point is marriage. The point is not divorce. Marriage was God's original design. Rather than go back and appeal to rabbi whoever, Jesus says, okay, let's just take it back to the beginning. Let's just start afresh and look at the situation. Jesus answered, verse 4, have you not read? Now, of course they had, but his point was, don't you understand this? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, Jesus goes to the source. He goes to God's design in marriage, Genesis chapter 2, and uh begins to teach them what they should be concerned about, the nature of marriage, not the possibilities for divorce. Well, let's look at some of the things that Jesus says here. From the beginning, he made them male and female. And they should become one flesh. Therefore, because they are male, female, male, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. In other words, there's a complementary design there, male and female to go together. Now, it probably 
perhaps in past generations would not even necessitate saying, but perhaps in our confused day it would be worth saying. Uh, I like the way one person puts it here. If God had supremely intended solitary life, God would have created humans one by one. If God had intended polygamous life, that is, more than one wife, God would have created one man and several women. If God had intended homosexual life, God would have made two men or two women. But that God intended monogamous heterosexual life was shown by God's creation of one man and one woman. Um, The whole debate over homosexuality in our day is answered by going back to Genesis 2. What was the Creator's design? It was one man and one woman. God created them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave, hold fast to his wife. So we see the complementary nature of male and female in marriage. That wasn't what the Pharisees were asking. I think they took that for granted. We can't in our day, sad to say. Uh, But he also points to the priority of the marriage relationship. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The point here has to do with the, the priority. When a man or a woman leaves his home, leaves her home, and they become husband and wife, they create a new family relationship, and that relationship to each other takes priority over relationship to mother and father. Uh, That's why it's so important uh, when a couple becomes married to be as independent as possible financially, emotionally, spiritually. Not that they don't still love their parents and in-laws, but that relationship uh, is is secondary to the husband-wife relationship when that relationship has been created. So the priority of it, the unity of it, they shall become one flesh. That one flesh union is expressed in the physical relationship, but it goes far beyond that. That's merely an expression of it. Uh, And yet the one flesh implies they they are one, not only physically, but spiritually, emotionally. Two distinct people, yes, but now one. Uh, There's a unity there in a unique and important way but also the permanence of the marriage relationship. He says, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Uh, They're not two anymore. They've become one. There's a unity there. Notice it's God who's joined them together. What God has joined together, let man not separate. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is saying, okay, let's get questions about divorce for the moment and go back to the beginning and look at what God originally intended. He intended that a, that a, that a male and female would come together uh, to form this new relationship that has priority over any other, that there would be a new unity in that relationship, that there would be permanence in that relationship because God has joined them together. Yes, they've taken vows. Yes, in a sense, they've initiated this, but in the marriage, God has joined the two together. And so Jesus points out in the first place that marriage was God's original design. It was his intent for male and female to be married, to value marriage, and not be looking for opportunities to divorce. That was not God's design. That was not God's intention from the beginning. Now, that raises a second question on their part in verse 7. They said to him, Okay, Jesus, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, if, well, Jesus, if what you say is true, 
then why do we find in Moses this teaching that you give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Okay? That wasn't part of God's design. Well, why do we find it there? Uh, whether they're asking, you know, trying to put the two together or just asking further to trip Jesus up, which is more likely. Uh, and Jesus answers that. And his answer, in his answer, Jesus points out that divorce was a reluctant concession. So first he points out God's original design. Second, he points out that divorce was, on God's part, a reluctant concession. Now, they raise this question about that passage we looked at, Matthew 24. Uh, what is that passage about? Notice what they say. Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, it does involve divorce. Matthew 24, 1. You may want to turn back over there. Uh, Deuteronomy, not Matthew 24, Deuteronomy 24, 1. And look at what is, what is actually said. Um, as Moses describes this, a man takes a wife, he marries her, they're married, but because of some, some indecency he finds in her, he divorces her, writes her certificate of divorce, puts, her, puts it in her hand, sends her out, she's gone. So she goes and marries somebody else. But then that man decides the same thing, or he dies for whatever reason the marriage ends. The first man cannot take her back as his wife. Now what's going on here? What's going on, as Jesus says, it's because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you, didn't command you, note they say command, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. The situation in, in, in Deuteronomy was to prevent chaos. It was to regulate the hardness of heart. In other words, our sinful hearts. It's not saying that someone divorces is because they have a hard heart. It's possible. But he's saying because of your fallen and sinful and rebellious hearts, this concession was given because there may be things that so strike at the union of husband and wife that divorce uh, may be the best option. But the certificate was to protect the woman. It was also to regulate a situation where you didn't have somebody, he divorces his wife, she gets married to somebody else, maybe somebody else comes back, he remarries her. It's an effort to reduce divorce, to limit it, to regulate it. But you see, by the, by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had taken that and saw that as license to divorce. Well, Jesus says, you know, if there's something about your wife you don't like, then you give her a certificate of divorce, send her away. That's what you're supposed to do. It's a command. Just, no, it's not a command. It's permission because of the fallenness, sinfulness of, our, of your hearts. By the way, notice Jesus never says of our. He says because of your hardness of heart. You know, if it were me, I would have to say because of our, because I would include myself. I, too, have a sinful heart. Jesus never identified himself with sin in that way. But Jesus says, no, this was a concession because now, post-Eden, post-Paradise, now that the fall has occurred, this is a concession to the sinful condition of the human heart. But it, it wasn't God's design from the beginning. Now, Jesus explains this. It's a concession. It was not God's original purpose. From the beginning, it was not so. This came up after the fall. Uh, but then he goes on in verse 9 to talk about his own view. This is what he says. Verse 9, I say to you, who, which, of course, he's the one who gave the law. This is God's view. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. 
Now, what I want to do in examining that is just look at the statement without the exception clause. Let's take that out first. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. This is actually how Mark states it. I think he's assuming the adultery exception, pornea exception. But what Jesus is saying here is that if, if a couple is married and they get divorced for the ever popular today, ever popular irreconcilable differences, and one of them marries another person, they're committing adultery. Why? How so? Because, as far as God is concerned, they should still be married to their first wife, to their first husband. That is the proper allegiance. That is the proper union. And for them to get divorced and to go and marry another is to commit adultery. Because they should be married to the first person, not the second. Now, it's important to say, because may affect some of you or people in our church, uh, certainly people perhaps you know. Suppose that's happened. Does that mean that the second marriage or the third is a life of perpetual adultery? No. Uh, at that point, you are married to that person, whether it's the second or third spouse, and should remain married to that person because you've taken that vow, you've made that pledge, you were in that marriage, uh, but the fact is, apart from the reason Jesus gives, you should, you know, in terms of God's original purpose, should be in that first marriage. Uh, not to be means to commit adultery, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that's a lifelong instance of perpetual adultery, but rather, um, as a Christian, seek God's repentance, forgiveness, and make that marriage that you are currently in the best it can be, most God-glorifying it can be, Absolutely. But what Jesus is saying is the reason it's adultery is because the person should be in the first marriage. As per God's design, marriage is permanent, at least until one of the other parties in the marriage dies. At that point, you, of course, released to marry another. Uh, marriage is until one or the other dies. But what about that exception? Jesus says, except for sexual immorality. The word he uses there is porneia in Greek. Uh, it does not refer specifically to adultery. That was a different Greek word. Moikeia is adultery. Porneia is more broad and refers to sexual sin generally. Certainly could include adultery, but would not be specifically limited to it. And what is Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying in cases where that has occurred, there has been such a blow against that one flesh union that the person sinned against in that way has the right to seek a divorce. Not an obligation to, not a requirement to, but could be granted that right in that situation, and the implication, I think, is be free to remarry another, to be married to another person if that opportunity should arise. And so, without going into details, um, it is a word that's broader than adultery, uh, the church has wrestled with exactly what kinds of situations that might include, sessions have. Uh, but certainly, um, Jesus is saying that where that one flesh union has been compromised, uh, then divorce is an allowed possibility, although certainly not required. Now, we did read the passage in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about the unbeliever leaving, the believer's not bound in those circumstances. Uh, it's a little bit different because basically what Paul is saying is if the unbeliever has already divorced you, if he's already left, 
the believer is not required to remain while I'm married to this person. I have no idea where he is, where she is. I don't know what's going to happen. Paul is saying the believer is not bound in that, but called to peace in that situation. Yes, the believer could be seen as divorced and would be free to remarry another because he's been deserted. She's been deserted. Uh, a lot of contingencies we can talk about there that are really beyond the scope of this sermon. But historically, the church has seen both unfaithfulness, sexual sin, and desertion uh, on the part of an unbeliever or a professing believer who, through discipline, is determined to be an unbeliever uh, as grounds for divorce. But it's important to say, Jesus' emphasis is not on how you can get divorced, it's how you should be married and the priority of the marriage and, and God's design in marriage for the permanence of marriage. Marriage is not easy. Too many people go into it with this naive, almost magical view that it makes everything all right, and it doesn't. Marriage is a union of two sinners with all of the complications and potential conflict and difficulty and stress that can entail. And yet, by God's grace, marriage certainly can be a magnificent thing, a wonderful thing. And uh, as two, especially with two believers, uh, with the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives toward one another. But it's also true for unbelievers. Unbelievers can have a happy marriage. Marriage is not a distinctly Christian uh, institution. It is a creation ordinance, not a church ordinance. God gave it to creation, not to the church, as we see in Genesis chapter 2. And so Jesus points out, and this should be our view, that the divorce is not an opportunity around every corner, but it is a reluctant concession on God's part where sin of a particular nature, has occurred. But the third thing Jesus points out, and this is in response to the disciples, not so much a question, but a statement or even an objection in verse 10, Jesus points out that each person has an individual calling. Look at verse 10. They're responding to what Jesus says, and they say, well, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. which shows you how much their mindset had been steeped in the easy divorce culture. Wow, you know, if it requires that kind of commitment, well, maybe you just shouldn't get married. Well, let me tell you, if you've got reservations about the commitment of marriage as a lifelong commitment until one or the other of you dies, maybe you shouldn't get married. But let's look at what Jesus says. You know, that reflects their mindset. Well, maybe you shouldn't get married if if it requires that kind of commitment. What does Jesus say? Well, not everyone can receive this saying. What's saying? I think he's referring, I think it's quite clear, he's referring to what just preceded it, what the disciples just said. We shouldn't get married. Well, Jesus says, not everyone can receive that, only those to whom it's been given. And he goes into the verse, uh, verse 12 with the eunuchs. Those have been so from birth, perhaps congenital deformity. Uh, those who have been made eunuchs by men. There were court officials in regard of royal in in in, in, in uh, charge of royal harems who um, let's just say were made to meet the job requirements and, and uh, qualifications. But then Jesus says there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And I think I think Jesus is I definitely think Jesus is speaking metaphorically there of those who, for the sake of the kingdom, uh, forego marriage and its attendant uh, intimacies. For the sake of serving the kingdom, Paul himself would be such an example. Uh, he says, I wish that everyone could be as I am, and yet each person has to be faithful to his own calling, which is essentially what Jesus is saying here. 
some are given the gift of singleness. Uh, and, and that may be by sense of calling or choice uh, for whatever reason. Uh, someone may feel like God has called them to live a life of singleness. That's okay. Uh, as long as they have the self-control physically and uh, uh, I- inwardly as well, um, that's a gift that God gives to some. Uh, some may be single by calling. Some may be unwillingly, simply because they've not met the person that God has for them. That may be temporary, life of singleness for a while, uh, or maybe coming into a dawning awareness. That's what God has for them. Um, it's important that as a church we embrace single people, that we not make them somehow feel second class uh, or left out because they aren't married with three and four children like many of us in the church or whatever it might be. Uh, they serve a valuable purpose. God uses single people in some pretty amazing ways uh, with opportunities that they have, freedom that they have. Uh, Paul mentions uh, in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, that, um, that the married person is concerned about his wife, you know, his husband, her husband. And there is that obligation that the single person doesn't have. There's a great deal of freedom there. However, uh, in the implication of what Jesus says is that for most people, God's call is to marriage. Um, to be committed to their spouse as long as they both shall live. This comes down to a sense of trusting God's providence, whether at this point you are single, uh, happy in it, unhappy in it, but trusting God's providence, uh, or married, trusting God's providence. Uh, you're married to the person, not just married by the design of God, but married to the person you're married to by God's providence and God's sovereignty. He led you two together. He led you to want to get married. And so we need to recognize that greatest joy is not found in believing the lie that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. It's greener. It's because it's been poisoned with all kind of fertilizer and it's not going to be good for you. But that God has you where he wants you and learning to be content in God's goodness, in God's provision of the husband or wife that you now have. Sinner to be sure. But we don't want to fall into having a cynical view of our husband or wife or cynical view of marriage. You know, our society, is, is, it's interesting, there's on the one hand this, this skepticism or cynicism about marriage in many quarters, uh, nothing new. Socrates voiced this a long time ago when he said, by all means, get married. Uh, if, you are, if you marry well, you'll be a happy man, and if you don't marry well, you can become a philosopher. Uh, so cynicism about marriage has been with us a long time. On the other hand, even outside the church, there's still this aspiration toward marriage. There's still this, 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 this desire to, to marry the perfect person and live happily ever after. Uh, the stuff of fairy tales. But we need to recognize and have a realistic view of marriage, but also a sense of God's providence and seeking joy, uh, not in the ideal of marriage, or not even in the ideal of the perfect husband or wife, but in the reality of who your husband is, the reality of who your wife is. Don't love an ideal, love the person. Trust in God's providence. And so as Jesus teaches here, he reminds us that while divorce is given as a concession to the fallen sinful condition we live in, it's not God's design. And our thoughts should not be about how can I get divorced. It should be how can I make my marriage that God has me in the best it can be. Or if you're single, how can I live as a single person to the glory of God with contentment in the condition in which he has me now? And then Jesus reminds us that each of us has the calling from God to where we are. So we need to serve him, glorify him in that. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for these words. Thank you for the truth that they represent. Uh, Father, certainly in our day, in many quarters, these would not be popular words. Uh, We live in a day of self-seeking, of expediency. And Father, certainly marriage is not always easy. But we pray for our marriages. Uh, Father, we pray that we would enjoy the husband, the wife that you have given us. And in singleness, Lord, uh, and even in marriage, to recognize that you are our highest treasure. That you are our greatest possession, and we worship and serve you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.